that was probably the most fear I've ever experienced. You're like being told we're going in to war. And I was so scared for myself and my soldiers there. Here are 12 soldiers and they're completely trusting me, you know, to lead them. And that's when it really hit me. I was like, wow. This is for the others out there, the other ambitious people who want to play at a higher level in their life. It's time to get curious and get real. Join me, and together, let's find the others. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Find the Others podcast. For the other ambitious people out there who want to play at a higher level, I am your host, Joshua Church here. New episodes are dropping every Wednesday and Sunday, so be sure to hit subscribe so that you can get the notification when a new episode drops. And if you're enjoying the podcast or you find something that might be valuable, be sure to share with a friend who also might be into it so we can help grow our tribe of others. Today, I'm excited to bring you a conversation I had with my friend, Sagi. Sagi is an awesome, interesting, fascinating human who's been through a lot of real life things. When we were 18, and most of us at 18 are graduating high school and going off to college, Sagi was joining the army, and not just any army, but the Israeli Defense Forces, IDF, Israel's army. He joined and became a machine gunner combat soldier and eventually commander. And in 2014, two years after joining, he led his troops behind enemy lines into real combat during the war in Gaza in 2014. Sagi is now pursuing a career in chiropractic care, studying at the Life Chiropractic College West up in Hayward in California. And we talk a lot in this conversation about combat up close and personal, the good, the bad, the ugly, some of the most inspiring stories, his mindset and drive to constantly push himself and just where inspiration and beautiful things find themselves in the most unexpected places. You can give him a follow on Instagram at sagi.hebron29. Without further ado, let's welcome Sagi. Sagi, welcome, bro. How's it going? Oh, it's Thanks going. for having me. Dude, thank you for being on here, man. I am uh, certainly excited to have you here and to sit down and chat and uh, to catch up. Always great seeing you back in San Diego. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm Super excited to, to chat, to just chat, have a conversation. Absolutely. I love it. Um, I think we caught up when a couple of weeks ago when I saw you in town, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a month or so ago, and we started getting into conversation. And it was clear that like the conversation was passing a depth where it was like no longer appropriate for just a social table with other people sitting around. And we were like, yo, we should catch up like deeper. Yeah. Like, we should set up. You texted me after. You're like, if you want to know the real answers, like let's set up some time later and let's dive deeper. Absolutely. And I, uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate like giving the conversation and giving certain conversations the space they need to like to fully go there and to be present with each other. So I love that. Cool. Every, yeah. Every time someone someone asks me like, questions that you ask me. Yeah. I tell them like, do you really want to know? Or are you just asking to know, you know, like, yeah, for a short answer. And cause it's, a, it's going to take a little more time than 
big time what we have now so big time it's funny because i relate that to in a, in, a, in a much different note but a similar parallel path um when people ask like what do you do it's like do you really want to know what I do? Or are you just like asking for the pleasantry of asking or, you know, Hey, how was your trip to so-and-so? Or how was this experience? Like, do you really want to know? Cause if you do, then we got to go sit down and drink some coffee and like really dive deep. So similar situation when people ask about your experience in the army and, and, and fighting in battle. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Definitely not a superficial conversation. Right. For so. sure. Um, cool. Well, I'm excited to just go ahead and dig into this. Um, you know, it's funny, but I think we started, we became really good friends um, in high school where, through Yassi. Shout out mm. to Yassi, of course. Um, and all of a sudden, like, we just all started hanging out. And I just remember, like, how much fun we all had. Just, like, it just complete like 10 year old kids just playing around messing with people pulling pranks like just like pure joy all the time right absolutely and uh and then you you know kind of our, our paths went on from there and most of us went and get giddied up and went off to college or went to go work or something like that but you took a different path didn't you yeah yeah all my friends went to college and i uh decided to draft to the army to the israeli army the idf actually the IDF. Yeah. So, and so wait, when was that? Was that senior year you made that decision? When did you make that decision? It was senior year 2012. Okay. Um, I, uh, just made the decision like, Hey, uh, I need to do this for myself. Was it something that you always wanted to do or was it something like, how did that decision, how did you come to that decision? Cause I'm sure there's different stages to it, right? So this on its own is a deep question. Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna dive. Let's dive, dive right in. In. The stage is yours, my friend. So Growing up, my my parents they were they were both born in Israel, mm -hmm. so they were always very connected to the land. And I would always fly to Israel as a kid every summer with my family since I was born. So I was one, the second I was born, pretty much a couple months after that, we flew to Israel, and then every summer after that, I flew to Israel. So I, I've been to Israel before I drafted you know, my senior year, probably about 18, 19 times. Yeah. And every time we'd be there, we would stay for at least a month at a time. And it was just due to how much family we had. Like my mom is one of eight kids. Uh, and so we had so much family, we had to visit. And uh, the service there in Israel is mandatory. So all of my cousins and you know, aunts and uncles, everyone drafted to the army, everyone served, everyone has their stories. And most of them were combat too. And that happens, so, that happens regardless whether you want to or not. And when you're 18 in Israel, you draft into the army, right? Pretty much. Uh, women have a choice. They can either serve in the army or they can serve in different ways, like, okay. te like teaching or doing other community service. Right. But men, men have to serve in the army. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And where does that come from? Like, why is that the case? The case is like that just because of reality, just how the situation is in, in, in that country. So Israel surrounded by many countries that want to destroy it, just totally surrounded. And so it's just, that's the reality. You know, you mm -hmm. have to protect all borders and the Middle East is a hot place. So <laughs> both physically and <laughs> <laughs> metaphorically. That's right. So... Got it. Okay. So, so take me again through this decision process. So back to the question. Um, so pretty much I, I finishing high school, I was at, I was at a point where I just, I felt like I, I'm skinny guy. Right. But I felt like I was skinny in the mind as well. Like I didn't know 
you know, like who I was, what I wanted to do with my life. And in a sense, I needed to just figure myself out. I, I just, I really like, that's the honest, that's the honest answer. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no direction. Um, I was lucky to have a very, very good support system, like a very good backing, very good, you know, backbone. Um, back home with my parents and my, my two sisters and very good friends. But uh, throughout high school, I was just like, I didn't really know why I was in school. Like I, I just, I was like a pretty average B student. You know, sometimes I would get A minuses and my dad would pat me on the back and I was just like, whatever, I feel like I'm doing this for you guys, you know, not for me. I didn't know what what I wanted, you know, and I, I knew that the only way to really figure out how, you know, figure myself out and what I wanted to do was to put myself in situations that would make me learn about myself. And the only way to do that, I, I realized the only way to do that is to go through, you know, very difficult situations to push yourself in really tough situations. And I learned that from, I would say my first, like, mentor when i say mentor i say people that like change my life yeah you know in a positive way and my first real mentor other than my parents obviously um who i love very much <laughs> um is was my cross-country coach in high school hmm. um, a guy named daryl driscoll uh, shout out to that guy shout out to coach driscoll <laughs> so he he was my cross-country coach and he took it extremely seriously and i was I was I would I was able to push myself in cross country so hard like I pushed myself more than anybody else did and he he noticed that in me and he would always ask me like we're running you know like a, a mile like timed run for in practice and he's like he just asked me he's like Sagi like how how are you this mentally strong like how do you do it and I would like laugh because I can't really talk I'm like <laughs> sucking wind you know and he's just asking me these like deep questions. And I would just be like, like, coach, I can't right now. You know, like I'm focused. And he would always ask me, ask me like how I was able to, you know, push myself like that. And I learned a lot from cross country. Like, yeah, it was D5. You know, I had like 28 students in my entire school. So we were just by, you know, <laughs> by default, we're, we're D5. Um, but, you know, I had a D5 record in the 5K I ran in like 1730, something like that. Um, That's like absurd. I was, I was, I was crushing it, you know, and I, I pushed myself so hard. And that was the first time I really realized like, wow, I'm learning about myself. Interesting. You know? And I was like, I need more. Like, this is nothing for me. I can do way more. And obviously I didn't know what the army was, like how difficult it was. You know, I knew I was going to be scared. I was going to be in situations where I was scared. I knew I was going to crawl a lot, you know. Like shooting guns sounded cool, but it's not really cool when you're in the army. You know, it's like, it's very serious. So um, that was a big part of of my decision. What, what was the bridge from, okay, I want to continue pushing myself? Because I could see that translating to many different areas. What was the bridge between, I really want to keep pushing myself and I'm learning a lot through pushing myself to the army is the next avenue in which I want to push myself? Mm -hmm. So the big part of it was every time I'd go to Israel, my, all my family that was like in the army, they're like, they just asked me they're like, Hey, when are you drafting? Got it. Like, 
And I don't know if it was them trying to push me to do it or if it was just them like letting me in, you know, like mm-hmm. just treating me like family. Yeah. Because everyone in my family did it. And that always like was planted in the back of my mind and I would always think about it. And it just slowly would slowly seep to the front of my mind, you know, and I was like, wow, like this could be it. This could be the thing that pushes me to the next level and that gets me to learn about myself. Right. So that's, that's a big reason. And I also wanted to really give back to the place that my parents grew up in. Like, I'm so thankful for how my parents were raised and how they raised me. And I wanted to tap into that a little bit. You know, like yeah. where, where did, where were they, you know, when they grew up and I just wanted to be around the people that, you know, kind of surrounded my parents and, um, it was really special experience. It's very, very cool. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you decide, make the decision. Cool. We're shipping off. Then what happens next? So I actually drafted with a group, um, of soldiers you know, you draft together a group of lone soldiers. It's what they call us. It's just people that don't really have a family in Israel, like a close family. And they just draft together and they live together throughout the service for the first like year and a half. And then you can kind of disperse wherever you want. And um, those are a lot of my friends that I still keep in touch with. I'm very close with them. But um, I, dra- I I made Aliyah with them, making Aliyah is, you know, moving to Israel and starting to live there pretty much. Mm-hmm. And I made Aliyah with them and we lived together on a kibbutz called Kibbutz de Aliyah in the north in this ridiculously hot, deserty area. <laughs> and I think it's like the ninth hottest place in the world. <laughs> you know, it's, it's ridiculous. W- was this the same kibbutz that I ran into you in or is this a different uh, one? This was the same this kibbutz. So, so, so you, literally, you literally came to my house. I literally came to your house on a completely unrelated, call it coincidence. Nah, it's yeah. not part of my vernacular. I'm on birthright. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was, you had, you were still, were you still in the army or you just yeah, finished? I was you in the still, army, yeah. This was after, um, you were still in the army. Was this after you were in Gaza or no? This was after the war. Yeah. This was after the war. Um, you were still in the army you were close to wrapping up your time there right yes and i was was with birthright i was on the birthright the organized you know trip over to israel 10 day trip to israel with a couple of my friends and we're just going along with the program like we know we show up and we're learning about this kibbutz and and we're 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 walking around and then you come out of nowhere and you're like and you like found me (laughs) how did that happen i was so i was at home and i was i just i was looking for something to eat i was like you know i'm just gonna get some cereal yeah i opened the fridge no milk so I'm like, oh, I got to walk, you know, to the big fridge. We have like a communal fridge on the kibbutz and we, they have free milk for all the members. Yeah. Endless milk. Cause we have a bunch of milking cows and yeah. whatever, dairy cows. So mm-hmm. I, I'm walking to the, to get some milk and then I just run into you and I'm like, that's Josh. Like that's Joshua church. You know, like, <laughs> so funny. What? And then you brought me back. I saw you. And that was so cool. Was so crazy. shout out to there being no milk in your fridge. Cause if exactly. there's milk, we would have, that would have been a trip to think that we were yeah. there together, but didn't actually end up seeing mm-hmm. each other. So massive, uh, shout out to, and, and can give me a little, just like a brief little context. Maybe we can dig into this later too, but about the kibbutz and what, what living, what, what that is first off and what living in that environment was like. So kibbutz is like a community that, Pretty much everyone makes the same money. Everyone works for the kibbutz, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a different job on the kibbutz. Um, just to like upkeep, maintain, whatever. There are engineers, there are you know people that work on the farm. 
um, for whatever whatever the kibbutz really needs. And everyone makes the same amount of money. And all the houses in the kibbutz are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. And everyone just lives together. And it's just a very large community. And that's pretty much it. You know, you're just like, everyone's kind of family, kind of like family. Yeah. Everyone knows everyone. Um, it's really nice. It's not for everybody, I'm going to say. Um, but the kibbutz, they take in lone soldiers. Uh, so my group, the group that, you know, moved to Israel with me, the group of people that made Aliyah with me, um, we all lived there together. Got it. And after a year and a half, you had the freedom to choose if you wanted to move on to go somewhere else in Israel or to stay. And I decided to stay, actually, hmm. um, because they have this really nice buddy system where each lone soldier um, gets adopted by a family that's already living on the kibbutz. So and my sister, actually, she she drafted into the army before me, about a year and a half before me. And she got when she also lived on the same kibbutz as me and was adopted by the same oh, that's family. That's cool. That's cool. So um, that was a nice little became like family, I'm sure. Yeah. So yeah. and the people, the people that adopt the family that adopted me and my sister, um, they they were, I think they're four. Yeah, they're four boys and a girl, the kids. They're four boys and a girl. And they really treated me like 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 I was their sibling yeah it was it's pretty amazing like I, I can't say I've I was treated you know like that close by any other family that's ever you know that I've ever come into contact with that's beautiful yeah, and I actually spoke to one of the the boys you know yesterday so that's very cool it's pretty cool so yeah. so you're on this kibbutz which is basically like this this ecosystem this community that's self-sustaining right from my understanding exactly. people you know you you're farming you said that there's a lot of milk because you've got mm-hmm. livestock and there's people that are responsible for the, doing the farming the teaching and, and the, the classroom right like everything is kind of self-sustaining ecosystem yeah it's pretty secluded like quiet mm-hmm. area yeah. yeah okay very cool so you arrive and that must have been different than la jolla california <laughs> yeah very different <laughs> so like to get to the city is like it's like 20 minute drive, you know, it's very quiet. Um, you're, it's like you're on the border of Jordan. It's like, you know, it's beautiful area. It's just very secluded. Yeah. Like even the city is like, no one even goes there. It's like very small city called Bichan. No one really knows, you know, what it is. It's extremely hot. Like people usually avoid it. And this kibbutz is kind of like an oasis in a sense. Like there are a lot of fresh springs around it. Mm. Um, it's just like a, a really nice place to to get away. And that's like exactly what I needed from, you know, when being in the army. Like you're in the army, you're it's extremely intense, both mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. And you're on base for like a month at a time or two months at a time. And you just want to get away from all of it, you know. And, you know, you drive like three, four hours on buses. Sometimes it takes even longer just because of how the buses are. They're really slow. Um, you get home and you just... You know, you just drop all your stuff and you're like, wow, like it's so quiet here. Yeah. You know, you you know everybody around you. It's like, it's really nice. And that's one of the reasons why I, I didn't leave, you know, because okay. it got more and more quiet because other people left and I stayed and I just had the whole house to myself pretty much. And I, I really needed that. Like that was important to me. That's great. 
Amazing. So you come over there, you're getting a, you're getting settled into the kibbutz and your new home and environment and you start training, right? Is there a training process yeah. when you got over there for the IDF? Yeah. So November 21st, 2012 is when I started training. Okay. That's when I drafted and that's when I started training. Just eight, just over eight years ago. Exactly. Almost to the yeah. day. The yeah. craziest thing. So you just, you go to this base, you're don't know anyone. They call up, they call your name. They tell you standing this line. You stand in line with a bunch of other people that don't know anyone and they're also being drafted at the same time. You know, everybody's got their military buzz cuts. And if you didn't get a buzz cut, they send you to the barber, the military barber, which is the biggest mistake you can make. Don't <laughs> ever do that. Um, you go, you stand in line, you know, they get all your information, fingerprints, blah, blah, blah. You keep moving in the line. You're just walking down this you know, aisle, you get pricked on the right shoulder by like a needle. You don't know what type of vaccine they're giving you or whatever, probably like a tetanus shot. I don't even know. <laughs> and while you're distracted by the needle that just went into your right shoulder, you get pricked by another one on the left. And you're like, <laughs> oh man, like what? And then you keep walking and people are just directing you and you're just like, like herded sheep. Yeah. You, know? you don't know what's, what's going on. Um, they prick your finger. They tell you to draw like this circle with your the blood just like a blood t i don't know it was it was it was weird it was insane <laughs> um they give you a little bit of gear like some uniforms a couple couple pairs of uniform and they just load you up onto buses and they say you're going to your base for the next like four to eight months you're like all right and they tell you what unit you're in <laughs> they're like all right you're in nachal which is a ground unit mil uh yeah like infantry unit. Mm -hmm. so I'm like all right um I went, I, you get to the base and, you know, like the next, next week they tell you there's like tryouts for the special forces. And I was like, oh yeah, like I'm game. Right. Yeah. And before you get there, they start, they already, you know, they tell you to put on uniform and they start, they start, you know, excuse my friends, they start shitting on you and yeah, your squad. Totally. Right. Already you're crawling, you're, you're, everything you do is time. So it's like. If you didn't come with a stopwatch that day, you're screwed. Like, you know, you, you don't move your watch from the stopwatch. Like I've had it, my watch on a stopwatch for like four to eight months huh. nonstop. You know, it's like, it's weird. It was weird to bring it back to the clock mode. You know, <laughs> that's funny. No joke. Yeah. Like everything is timed. So they tell you like 10 seconds, you ran over there. 10 seconds, you ran over there. 10 seconds, you crawled. All the, and it's just like, you're like, what am I doing? Like, this is this is not, like, why? You know, you don't understand. And then at the end of that day, I will never forget this. My sergeant, he has us all like stand in attention in front of him. And, you know, there are some soldiers acting out in the beginning because no one knows what they're doing. And he says, I'll never forget this. He says, you know, when, when, when you piss on the army, the army gets what? When the army pisses on you, you drown. And we're like, whoa. <laughs> wow. That'll sober you up real quick. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I was just like, damn. Like, I went to sleep that night, like, just totally gassed. Like, super sore, just so tired. My elbows were shredded and bleeding from crawling, like, on rocks. And I was like, wow. Like, this is serious. Like... This is what I signed up for, you know, and that's how it all began. <laughs> did you know at that moment that you had found that right next avenue to push yourself? Or did you find that reassurance? 
Um, I didn't, I didn't, I wouldn't say I did right away. When um, did that come? Was there a moment where you were like, okay, I'm now like, I'm pushing myself. Was it until you got into live combat? Was it before then? It was, it was, uh, I would say around the first month after okay. the first month. Um, so after the first month, you kind of get your position in the squad. So there are a couple sharpshooters, there are a couple like grenade launchers, um, like ad- additions to the squad. And, and I got the machine gunner, um, like a, a light machine gun. There's a heavy machine gun, which is you get one per platoon. And there's a light machine gun, which you get per squad. And there's only one per squad. And I was chosen to be the one. And they usually give it to the crazy American kid that just is insane, <laughs> like mentally. I was going to say, how do they choose that one yeah. for the entire squad? How do it's they choose It's very that? much like personality and physical fitness. Interesting. And, you know, I'm like the skinny kid and, you know, I didn't expect that. But I ran really fast, you know, and I surprisingly was able to carry a lot of weight. So, you know, and I would say it was more mental than physical. Um, and, yeah, they gave me the machine gun. So I was carrying... This light machine gun, you know, belt fed, you know, you got a drum that you put in the bottom. It's not like, you know, a magazine. And it was, it was a lot of weight. It was a lot of weight. So, you, I mean, you're what, 18, 19 years old at the time? 19? Yeah, I was 18 years 18 old. 18 years old at the time. We're getting, I'm, I'm pledging a fraternity in another universe in Ohio, getting handed a yeah. six pack of beer and you're getting handed a machine gun. Exactly. So... <laughs> And the machine gun comes with a lot. Like it's, you know, you get four drums. Each drum has like 250 rounds of like lead point, you know, bullets. It's Mm -hmm. belt fed. It's just like overall, everything that you're carrying is around like 80 to 90 pounds. And you can't get that right away. Like that would shock your body, right? So they give you like, you know, one drum and then they add another one and they add another one. And you slowly, slowly get used to the weight. It's, it's, it's weird. You, you adapt, know? huh? Your body you adapts. Adapt and you you build your, your traps, like, you know, get stronger. And it's weird. It's really weird. Like, I didn't think my body could change that much. Um, and it's just, I was, there. a lot was expected of me. So I had to adapt to that. Um, and I'll talk more about that a little yeah. later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so four months go by. I'm this machine gunner, you know, and... After four months, there's like a wave of people that are chosen from the platoon to go to, you know, early admission commander's course. So, and I wasn't chosen at first. And the officers only choose seven from each platoon. And there's like 40, 50 in each platoon. And they already chose the seven. Like some of my closest friends from my squad were chosen. And I was like, damn, like, you know, I was a little bit jealous, like, wow, you know, that's pretty cool. Usually they don't choose machine gunners because a machine gunner, it's a very specific, you know, task mm-hmm. and the training is very specific. And once you train a machine gunner, you don't want to like take it away because when you become a commander, you lose the machine gun because you get a right. machine gunner. Right. And so that's kind of like, you know, breaking the rules in a sense, you know, it's either you took them through this training and then that's it. Right. And so those, my friends, they did this kind of like introduction to what they're going to go through for commander's course, a couple of days. And on the last day, my officer comes to me and he says, Sagi, you're, you're being taken instead of another guy from our squad. 
Wow. And I was like, whoa. Like, and he's like, I need to know now if you want this. And that was when I, you know, decided like, wow, like I'm this American kid from San Diego, California, you know, like I just came, I signed up to be a soldier, you know, I didn't know what it really entailed. And now I'm going to, you know, become a commander. I'm going to be leading soldiers. And I didn't know what, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I had no idea, you know, and, and my commander, like I looked. I looked up to that guy so much, even though every day he was literally destroying me in the dirt. Like I was just like, wow, like I was going to, I was going to be that, you know? And so I said, yes, I was like, let's go, you know? And I was like, if I fail, I fail. I don't care. Like physically, I know I'm there, you know, the language, I had the language because my parents spoke to me in Hebrew, like growing up. But, uh, you know, I didn't know how, if I was able to like, you know, teach classes because my commander, you know, they teach you classes in a class about your gun, your weapon, you know, all the ranges the weapon has and things like that, you know? And so I was like, wow, like, I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it. You know, like I I really dove, I dove head first Mm. into the deep end. It really was. And so I went to commander's course for four months. um, And it was very, very intense. In commander's course, it's just all different units from of infantry from all different places. So I met people from a bunch of different units, like not even my unit, which was an interesting experience. Um, and you're still a combat soldier. So, you know, people are given machine gun, you know, sharpshooter, like all the same tasks you had before, just in case if something happens, you know, you, you go in. Um, so... I was a machine gunner, you know, also in the commander's course, which is, which sucked because it was so heavy, <laughs> you know, and I had to carry that thing through all the training and in commander's course, which is crazy. You really learn about every single weapon that you can possibly, you know, get into contact with in the army. So I shot all the snipers, all the rockets, all the machine guns, you know, all the weapons you get very like, you know, uh, in-depth training on, um, which is cool. And you learn to lead, you know, they put you in very, very intense situations. I think like one of the experiences uh, that I had that I can remember was, you know, there's a week of navigations where you just navigate for a week. You know, they give you a map. They say, you need to get, you need to get to these three locations on the map. You have half an hour to study how to get there. It's like 10 miles, like round trip, you know, and, you know, at first you do it in the day. It's like shorter. It's like five miles. The next one is like seven to eight miles. And then the, then you do it at night, you know, and there's no flashlights and it's, it's, it's crazy. And you get back like at four in the morning, you know, you're done four in the morning. They give you another map and they say, boom, back into you have another 30 minutes to, to get to this and this and this location to memorize it. And you don't have a map when you're walking. So all you have is a compass. What are they testing for in that? What like what what did you feel like you were building or gaining from that experience? So throughout training, no one really knows why yeah. you're you're being, you know, you're crawling, why you're doing all these things, why you're being forced to change from your uniform to your like, you know, running clothing in like three minutes. Why? You know, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Like everyone's like, why? And people get really frustrated. And, you know, you only realize the reason why when you're in, when you're put in a situation 
or you have to do it, you know, or in, you have to really do that. Like, in real life. In real life. Give so me an like, example. In combat. Um, so I didn't know why I had to learn to navigate, you know, like that until, you know, in combat, your officer gets shot and injured. Next person in command is the commander. It's you. Boom. And the officer navigates usually. And now you're taking his position and you have to learn everything that he knew in his head before we went out as fast as you can, you know? So that's just like an example. Mm -hmm. And that happened a lot in the war with, you know, I had some friends that were, you know, in different areas and that happened to them. So, you know, you, you always have to be on your toes. You always have to, you know, nothing, nothing comes easy in the army. Everything, you have to be very scrappy. Like, you know, you have to be able to make something out of nothing all the time and just figure it out yeah. <laughs> on your own. Yeah. So that's Dang. what I dove into, like as being, being a commander. Very cool. So that's another couple months, right? And then four months, four months. Yeah. And then when does, when does the war break out? So after being a command, after I, I finished commander's course, I was told that I was going to be a commander for new recruits. So I took them through basic training, advanced training, and then they went into the unit. And then there's like four months when you're in the unit where you're kind of learning from the older guys. And that's when the war broke out. So my soldiers are fresh in the unit. They just finished training, like fresh off the bus, you know, and I'm their soldier. And boom, oh, oh, the war didn't really break out yet. It was more of there were three students uh, high school students that were kidnapped in Israel um, by terrorists. And I think uh, uh, one of the terrorist groups, they said it was them. They like, mm -hmm. you know, took account. Uh, they, so, you know, we, that's, that was the start. That was the beginning of uh, something that we didn't really know was going to happen. We just, you know, started making arrests, looking for the, looking for these students. Um, I think that was in March, 2014. March, 2014. And I think, it took a couple of months, I think about two, three months, if I'm not mistaken, um, where the army found them in a ditch. All three of them were were dead in a ditch uh, in Hebron, which is a, uh, also in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And when that when that happened, uh, obviously Israel retaliated. Um, we I think we caught. I don't know, about 200 to 300 terrorists, um, like really bad people that have killed multiple people in Israel uh, within those three months. And, you know, terrorist organizations, they weren't happy about that. So they started shooting rockets into Israel and it was getting, it was getting uh, ridiculous. Like at a point, you know, they were shooting about, it got to a point where it was like a thousand rockets a day. Right. And so Israel is like, you know, we can't have this. So, so that's how the war broke and out. And that's how the war broke out. So uh, you're saying a thousand rockets a day. And I know my, my grandma lives in Ashdod, yeah. which is in southern Israel as well. Yeah. And I know that there's many times where the, you know, the the sirens are going off and they got to go to the bomb shelter like yeah. throughout the day. And, you know, the civilians adapt to like this is kind of commonplace. Oh, these thousand rockets are just like Iron Dome is stopping most of these, I'm presuming, hoping. Yeah, so Israel made this amazing thing called Iron Dome where it kind of intercepts. It's a missile that intercepts a rocket in the air, right? Um, like, talk about humane, right? Instead of <laughs> retaliating, you're shooting the missile that's coming to land on your civilians, right. you know? Like, that's on its own insane. Um, and 
you know, like that's just the reality. They're just shooting rockets at civilians. Like it wasn't, it's not aimed at bases. You know, that's one thing, you know, at least shoot it at our soldiers. You know, we can defend ourselves. Right. right? Um, but, you know, shooting it at kids, preschools, preschools like in Ashdod in the area you're talking about, they put like a, a 10 foot concrete barrier on the roof so that students, so that preschoolers can still go to preschool, you know? And instead, and instead of like running into shelters as like, you know, three, four, five years old, right. imagine being in that reality, like sirens, you're used to that. Right. That's crazy. Um, so yeah. So, and we had to retaliate, you know, so, and there was a lot more to it. You know, it, the, the, in Gaza, they were building a lot of tunnels that went into Israel and they were, we didn't know where they were because they weren't open in Israel yet. Uh, mm -hmm. And they would they would come like five, six terrorists would open the tunnel and then cause an attack and with like RPGs and rifles and whatever they had. And these tunnels would open in like communities, you know, in Israel. And they would just shoot civilians and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the goals of the, the war, you know, to destroy the tunnels and, you know, to destroy all the areas where they were shooting rockets from into Israel. Pretty much. Mm -hmm. Those were kind of the goals, the two main goals. Yeah. Um, and I was a commander of 12 soldiers and they told us we're going in. You know, that was, that was probably the most fear I've ever experienced. You know, like being told we're going in to war. Um, and I didn't, and I was so scared for myself and my soldiers there. Here are 12 soldiers and they're completely trusting me you know, to lead them. And that's when it really hit me. I was like, wow, like I have to, you know, take these guys, these people that I trained myself and, you know, keep them safe and myself safe. Like I didn't even have time to think about myself because I had these 12 guys and they, everything they, like they did, they looked to me like, Sugi, what are we doing next? You know? And, you know, all my training like really kicked in. It became all muscle memory and I just, you know, instincts. It's all instincts. Wow. Yeah. So you're sitting there and you get this call up basically like you're going in. Um, and and Gaza, you're going, you're referring to Gaza, right? Going yeah. into Gaza mm -hmm. on these missions to to do just what you said, destroy the tunnels and the areas where they're firing the rockets. And, um, and then it hits you at that point. Now, was that like... Take me a little bit more through the psychology of what's going on in that moment when you're like, oh, crap, like we're really doing this. Yeah, um, I was so scared. Like, I'm going to be honest, like I was I cried like I was so scared, like I didn't know what to expect, like anything could happen. You know, I knew that, you know, on the way in, even a mortar can just drop on me because when you're so close to the border, there are no sirens, like because the the mortars they drop so quickly, you know, within three four seconds. Um, all you hear is a whistle, like a you hear a whistle, and then you just drop down and cover your head, and your you know your gonads, just in case. <laughs> but like you don't know, you know, yeah. you don't know, you just don't know. And so that you know that unknown was so scary for me, um, and the 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 time where it really hit me like wow like i could go in and not come back out is when i called my parents i i had to put my phone away 
because you know everybody can tap into your phones nowadays and so we just put all of our phones in this ammo box and we like lock them away and they they tell us you know you have 10 minutes with your phone before we're taking them away right then and there right then and there when the decision you had 10 minutes to process this all yeah this is not over the course of days or weeks this is like we're going in you have 10 minutes to make a call back home and we're going in so yeah so i called my parents you know the only people really that you know i would call and i called them i'm like you know, I, I didn't cry at there. I was just like, hey, like we're going in. I don't know when. I couldn't tell them any details. I just yeah. told them like goodbye, really. That's what I told them. Like, I love you. Goodbye. You know, put the phone down. And my parents were like, be strong. You know, you'll be fine. And we we go to the border, right? They lock our phones away. We go to the border and we're there. We're about to go in. We're ready. We're all face painted and you know, super scared. Um, and they say 24 hour delay. Hmm. So, and you're just like, oh, like, thank God. You know, they pull us back out. We go back to base. They give you your phones back. Call my parents. I'm like, hey, like, you know, they're like back already. We're like, <laughs> no, we didn't end up going in. Like, we don't know what's going on. Can't tell them any details. Um, the next morning, same thing. We're going in. I call my parents. Bye. You know, I love you. They're like, you'll be strong. Don't worry. You'll come out. Go to the border. Ready to go. 24-hour delay. Wow. Yeah. So we go back to the base. You get your phone again. Call my parents. Hey. <laughs> does that mess with you? Like, does it, it has to mess with you to some Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Right. It really, it really messes with you psychologically. Like, you're preparing yourself for the most intense thing. And you're so scared. And it's like getting a rug pulled out from under you. Right. Like, I'm ready. You know, like, yeah. let, let me just go in with it. Yeah. yeah. And so the third time, here we go. We're going in the next day. Call my parents. This time I was like, wow. Like, you know, like, <laughs> all right, we're going in. I love you. Goodbye. You know, same thing. They're like, okay, be strong. We get to the border. We're all like messing around, you know, at this point. We're just like, yeah, we're not going in. It's going to be another 24-hour delay. And they're like, all right, start moving. Boom. You're going in. Just like that. Yeah. And we're like, oh my God, like this is serious. And we started moving into Gaza. You know, formation. Everyone was super quiet. Everyone was laser focused. It was like all the the soldiers that gave you a hard time in training ended up being your best soldiers. Cause mm. they just channeled all that anger and that, you know, you know, being a bitch mentality into like, let's let's go. You know, was and there a sense of camaraderie that you felt in that moment Absolutely. more than other moments? Yeah, we all like held each other's hands in a circle right before we like, you know, said some prayers. And, you know, that was like the first and I didn't tell anybody this. But that was the first and only time I smoked a cigarette. Like that's how intense it was. And I hate cigarettes. Mm. I didn't even smoke the whole thing. I just my soldiers were so scared and they were just smoking like crazy. And I didn't know what to do to get them to like, you know, to get them hype, you know, to get them the morale up. And so I was like, give me one of them. And they knew I didn't smile. I was like, give me the cigarette. And they're like, oh, Sagi, really? And I was like, I took a a hit and I was like, what the hell is disgusting? And they all (laughs) laughed. And one of my soldiers was like crying because he was so scared. And I grabbed him by the shirt and I was like, it's like, you're going to be good. Like, you don't know how much more training you have, you know, like. 
You're kind of like a coach and a motivator and a mentor all at the same time. And I, I didn't know, I was just lied to everybody. I lied to my soldiers that they're going to be fine. I lied to their parents. I had their parents come to me and they're like crying to me, like take care of my child, you know? And I'm like, I'll take care of them. Like, I promise you, I'll, I'll bring them back to you. You know, I just promised them. And mm. I just totally lied. I had no idea if I was even going to come back. Mm. But it was just to keep them from, you know, mentally breaking down, you know? Interesting. And I didn't know if that was the right thing to do at the time, but that's just what I did. Yeah. And uh, we moved in and we were in there for like a week. Uh, we did a lot of crazy things. I saw a lot of crazy things in that first week because everything was new. Right. And I saw Apache helicopters like above my head, like shooting rockets. Like we moved in with these tanks. I never really knew how powerful a tank was until I saw it like in action. You know, it was, <laughs> it was funny because I've never been in such close contact with the tank and like worked with it like that. And our officers before we went in, all they told us was just make sure you don't run behind one, behind a tank. Because when a tank fires... The whole thing moves back like five feet. No way. And if you're behind it while it shoots, you pretty much die. Yeah. You get smushed. Yeah. So they're like, don't get behind a tank when it shoots. You know, like I learned so many random things that I'm probably never going to use in my life. Like I saw the most disgusting things. Like I'm not disgusted by anything anymore. Like you can show me anything. Like someone can throw up on my face. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be disgusted. You know, like I'll just wipe it off and say, let's go, you know, but it's just like, that's just things that I learned. And I was there for a week. You know, I came out after a week, they pulled us out because we finished our mission in the area that we were involved in. And we're like, wow, what a relief. You know, we get our phones back, call my mom, like we're out. They're like, wow, thank God. Within like three, four hours, they tell us we have another mission. There's a unit that's taking a lot of fire and they're, the, their men are, you know, there are a couple of people that are fallen, fallen down there over there and they need help. So we're going to replace them. We're going back in. And after I got a little taste of what Gaza was like, yeah. um, saying goodbye to my parents again, that's when I cried. Like, cause I knew that I could be gone like, like that, you know, and I cried and I tried so hard not to cry. So my parents wouldn't like, you know, cry, mm. but I, I couldn't hold it. Mm. Like, I couldn't hold it. And I was just so scared. And then we moved in again. <laughs> no delays? No delays this time. <laughs> no, they needed help. We went in and um, the second place that we were in was very, way more intense than the first the first place. Um, we moved in this place. It's called Bet Hanun in Gaza. And I think Gaza, like from border to border, uh, like east to west is around like six kilometers. Okay. And we we pushed in uh, like about, I think, two kilometers to the end, to the water. And the further deep you go in, the more action there is. And it, it was very intense. You know, we, were, we got shot at a lot. I got shot at a lot. Um, I had a bullet actually bounce off of me. Like I'm I'm so lucky to even be alive. Like I can't even describe to you. Um, I had like two or three situations where I was just, I didn't even know that I was that close to dying. You know, I was just acting because if you don't act, you die. Like that's just how it is. And I was acting for me and my soldiers. And 
like my soldiers after like a couple hours after you know everything calmed down a little bit inside they're just like man Sagi, you don't even know like where bullets are flying like you picked up your leg and bullets were landing right where your leg was you know like you like ran and right where you ran from or bullets are flying by, like whizzing by. Like you don't even understand. Mm. And I was like, yeah, like I guess something's watching over me. I don't know. I just do you didn't, believe I didn't that? Know. Do you believe, do you, uh, first off, do you believe in God? Big question. It, it, uh, I, I do believe in God. Yeah. I was raised, you know, modern Orthodox. A lot of the times, you know, that doesn't translate into the child, you know, throughout like life, but it did for me. Like I... I don't think, I, I don't, I think that without a God, I don't think I would have came out of there. Like I saw some things that didn't make any sense. Didn't make sense. Like what? Um, for example, me and my squad were getting shot at like heavily, like very heavily. We're being pinned down in this building and, you know, my machine gunner is, shooting from this window and he's shooting at the terrorists and for a second he like pulls back you know like hides behind this wall and he's getting shot at by uh a gun that is shoots bullets like 762 rounds and those go through wall they go through concrete so the wall that he's hiding behind is pretty much paper right for these bullets right and the bullets were literally going around his head like multiple times in a row. And I'm, he's at, at like the top of the staircase. I'm at the bottom of the staircase and I'm watching this happen and I'm screaming at him to move. I'm screaming at him. I'm like, I'm like, David, move, move, move. Like, don't stand there. And he just can't hear me. And he's so focused on returning fire. He returns fire, hides back again. And the bullets are going around him like as if there was, there was something covering him, you know, from behind. Like, I, I just can't explain. Wow. Like it's call it luck, call it whatever you want. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what to call it. You know, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Wow. And it happened like four or five times in a row, you know, like one time, call it luck. Two times, call it really lucky, you know, and he had no clue. Like, right. I've never told him this, you know. And it's just like nuts. That's just like one example. Similar to how your 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 teammates, your platoon members were telling you the same thing. Your squad members were telling you like, you don't even know. Yeah. You're just like in the moment there. Exactly. Yeah. Like you don't think of that. Yeah. You, know? you don't think of God at the time. You think of how do I stay alive here? Yeah. And it's it's just weird. It's such a weird feeling when you're there. It's like a weird stress. Mm -hmm. Nothing like you'll ever experience. What's your relationship with death? Like, do you fear death? Um, yes, I do fear death. Um, I think everyone does to a certain extent. Even to the people that say they don't, I think they do. Hmm. Uh, it's just, I just know that, you know, I've come so close to death. <laughs> like, like, I wasn't injured to a point where I'm about to die, right? But I come so close to being in a position where I'm going to die that, it's, it's kind of, I'm kind of like immune to it. Like I know already, like I'm aware of it. So it's like, I am, a, I am scared of it. I am. I don't want to die. I don't want to, you know, like obviously if I died painlessly, it wouldn't affect me that much. Right. Right. Cause like I'm there and then I'm not right. 
But just the knowledge of how it would affect the people around me, like my parents, my siblings, like that's what hurts me. Mm. That's why I'm afraid of it. Yeah. Interesting. What was what was something what was the most inspiring thing that you saw when you were in combat? Um, wow, that's yeah, there are a lot of things. Um, I had a friend who <laughs> I actually just told you the story a minute ago, um, who was actually an officer at the time during the war. And he, during combat, you know, he's in charge of, I don't know, about like 100 people, 100 combat soldiers. And during combat, he took a bullet to the bicep and his shooting hand. So he couldn't really move his arm, really, you know, he, a little bit like backwards, but that was his shooting arm. He couldn't even shoot. And just him knowing of how much his, his unit needed him, you know, like just, just the motivation. Like if they lost him, you know, another officer would have to take his place and everyone would have known that, you know, everyone would have known that in the back of their head, like, Oh man, like Bieber isn't here and this guy's replacing him. Like, should I follow his orders? Should I not? Like the 100% trust isn't there. Yeah. And he decided to stay to not get his arm treated, you know, just by the medics in the area. They just wrapped it just to stop the bleeding. And he stayed in for another two, two, two and a half weeks without getting it treated. Wow. And that was extremely, you know, motivational. Like, mm -hmm. Like talk about being a stud, you know, yeah. taking a bullet and just continuing on, you know, like that's, wow, that's crazy. And, um, another thing that really was pretty insane was <clears throat> one of my soldiers actually took a bullet to the leg and like right above the knee. And I saw it happening. Like I was pulling him down the stairs after he got shot. He's like, I'll never forget his look, the look that he gave me when I was pulling him down the stairs, like, thank you, like taking me into safety kind of thing, away from the fire. And I just grabbed him by the vest, pulled him down the stairs, like, and got my medic to take care of him. And I'm like, you know, talking to him, like grabbed him as he's like, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. He's freaking out. And, uh, you know, he had a pretty like specific job that I can't really talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, but when we got him out of there, we needed someone to replace him. And, you know, we're like, the, the only way you can get someone to replace him is you you go to the squad and you sit them all down. And you're like, hey, like we lost one today. Like, who's going to take his place? You know, and they know that they're going to be in more like closer to the front, you know, which is scary. But right away, one of the soldiers was like, hey, I'll do it. Like, no problem. Like, let's go. You know? Wow. And that was huge for me. Like, I was like, wow, like way to step up, you know? And that was also really motivational for me. I just like, you know, I take that into other aspects of life all the time. That what? That quickness to volunteer, yeah. to step up? Yeah. You got to step up. You know, when someone goes down, like be the one to step up. You mm -hmm. know? Like we don't have time to talk about, you know, fear and who's, you know, who's better at doing what, like. Just say, I'll do it and, you know, move on. Mm. And that, that adds motivation to everyone. For sure. So. I, I Something I've always said is leaders go first. Yeah. Like leaders step up and, and go first. And it sounds mm. like that's what that moment was for this kid. Yeah.
So, okay. Insane stuff, man. Yeah. Um, so you were in Gaza for how long in total for in total, all, all in all about a month, a month. Yeah. Okay. Where are you sleeping when you're in there, when you're in Gaza? You sleep as you move. You don't really, I wouldn't really say you sleep. <laughs> okay. You just have like, you know, breaks in between combat where you kind of like make wherever you at wherever you're at, you kind of make it into like a temporary base. You're not staying for an area for more than a day because then the enemy knows where you are. Right. So you're there for like, what, five, six, seven hours. You know, you, you have like uh, five out of the 15 people sleeping for a couple hours. And then, you know, their shift is over like while everyone's, you know, guarding them. And then the next people sleep and we're like three commanders, and an officer in the platoon that we moved together. And there's always a com at least one commander that's awake, you know, making sure mm -hmm. the people that are guarding have someone to, you know, go to if they need anything, you know, making sure everything's going smoothly. And if something happens, you know, you can, you know, retaliate. Yeah. You know, so, right so it's just like a constant, like moving cycle and some people taking some naps i guess you could call it a couple hours here or there as as yeah. as they can yeah because if you think about it you have to yeah it makes sense you're shooting every day yeah. you have to clean your weapons every day the end of every day you have to find time to do that which takes an hour or two and you have to do it you know also like in groups because you can't have all weapons not being able to fire at once right and then you also have to eat. You have to find time to eat. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to find time to you know tell the soldiers what they're what we're doing next, which is also has to be very thorough. Yeah. So you don't really have time. Like you, you know, time is is really scarce. Yeah. And there's always something going on. Right. You always all of a sudden you got to move. You know, you don't have time to do it. So it's like you don't expect to sleep. You don't expect to eat. You don't expect to drink. You just expect to stay alive and do exactly what you're supposed to do in what, the system. What was the most surprising thing that you found when you were pushing yourself to that to those limits in that time? So physically, actually, uh, the war was not nearly as difficult as training. Really? Yeah. That's how hard training is. Wow. You're pushed so far physically that you're you're literally asleep while walking with 90 pounds on your back after walking for, I don't know, 12 hours straight, you can't feel your feet and you're literally sleepwalking with 90 pounds on your back. And the only time you'll wake up is if you kick a rock or if you just totally fall because you lose your balance. Yeah. Like that's how much you're being pushed mm -hmm. physically. And it's, it's like, the war, like you're carrying is, you don't care about food. You just carry as much as ammo as you can. You double everything. You double all the ammo, you double as much as water. And like, that's it. You know, and like usually in, in training, you'd carry like way more than that. So physically, you know, you're not, you're not like being pushed that much except for maybe lack of sleep. But in training, you're also lack of sleep right, all day. Right. So it's like. The, the where it really gets you is mentally the fear you're it's non-stop fear like stress anxiety fight or flight mode you're in a state of fight or flight mode and that's what really destroys people mm. mentally that's what gets you psychologically like when it, it's like it's like it traps you 
You know, it's like, when can I get out of this? Like, you just want to run. You don't know where to go. It's like, I, I can't, I can't explain the feeling. It's like, mm. it's not like any other fear you'll ever experience. It's not like you're jumping off of a cliff, you know, right. You have that fear of that adrenaline. Oh, you jump off and then it's over. You know, it's like here, you have that fear. You're getting shot at, you get into safety and you're still scared. And you don't know what to do. You don't know how to react to the fear. You're like, like, I'm not out of the situation yet. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, and you're like that for a month, for a month. And so that's where PTSD like comes in. You know, people can't get away from it. Yeah. And, you know, it gets to a point where you're used to it. You know, people, it, you're, you're there for like a month at a time, every day, every day. It becomes normal, becomes regular life. And that's how PTSD, in my opinion, I think that that's how it happens. Um, you you get out, you get out of the war, and you're still living in that everyday mm. fight or flight, and you can't get out you of can't it. You're flip locked, the switch. You're locked in. Now I gotta ask you because from and and this is pure speculation from initial conversations we've had, and just from what I what I understand and, and know about you and hanging out with you as a friend, it seems like you have been able to move on flip that switch back is that accurate statement how has that been a case what are like how are, how are the effects of it now versus when you were there ah yeah so i uh i wouldn't say i mean yeah the war definitely affected me mentally yeah. mentally completely changed my life mentally totally like i don't see the world at all the same mm -hmm. um and that really hit me when when i re realized i was like man like I'm getting shot at and these people are trying to kill me. They're trying to kill me. They're not trying to like say, get out of here. You know, they're there to kill me. And um, that really changed my perspective on life. How so? Um, How did that translate? I, I realized that, you know, like, <laughs> like we say this all the time, you know, live life by the fullest, live life like every day it can be, it can be your last, it can, it can be your last, right? And like that, that was so real to me. Like I, I, I knew that I had to change my perspective. Like I had to see everything for good. Like I had to clear my mind. Like it was more of like, it was kind of meditational. It's weird to say it like this, but um, I had to like close my eyes and think, I was like, I can either, you know, freak out about this and lose my mind. Or I could sit down and tell myself, how am I going to get stronger from every single experience mm. that I'm going to go through right now? Mm. And then in the next, I don't know how. Because I didn't know how long I was going to be in there. And I really, really, every day I'd like thought about that. And something that really kept me sane was um, after the first week, I started writing down everything. I journaled. I journaled every day what we did. And I wrote it down in Hebrew. <laughs> And I didn't think of doing it until I was inside and I was like, wow, I need to change my perspective. And I looked around in one of the houses that we were in at the time. I saw like a Dora the Explorer book just thrown on the floor, like half open. It was empty. I picked it up and I, I started journaling, like put a date and I wrote down what happened every day. Wow. And I still have that to this day, um, locked away in one of my drawers. Um, and that kept me sane. Like I, I wrote down everything and I told myself like, this is now in the past. 
like, and I reflected on it every mm. day. What did I learn? Like, wow, this happened. That was crazy. You know, like, wow, I did this and this and this, like, and I, and I got past it. Like tomorrow's not going to be nearly as hard. Right. Like, look what I just went through. Mm. Like I'm a beast. I would keep on like, you know, like self-love. Like I would just keep on telling myself that I'm a beast. I'm an animal. Like, look at what I went through mentally, physically, like, you know, like I can get through this. I kept on t telling myself that and it kept me sane. And I really, uh, I don't know. It's just like what I just decided to do it. You know, I decided to do it and I did it. And, you know, thank God I didn't come out with anything. Yeah. Any PTSD or. Is that a practice? That's fascinating. Is that a practice that is stuck with you still to this day? Is that something that you actively engage in as some sort of journaling or self-reflection process practice? Um, so I don't journal every day. Mm -hmm. I journal only when I feel like I need to. Cool. So sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and I'm like, wow, like I just had a crazy dream. Like, I don't know what it means, but it made me think it's making me think. Right. And when I'm, when my brain starts going, like, I'm like, wow, I should write this down. And then I just journal. Yeah. Um, like I meditate very differently than anybody else. I know everybody meditates differently, but like for me, meditating is like, I don't sit on a pillow and like, you know, close my eyes and, and like in, in silence, like that's mm -hmm. not my meditation. And I know it works for a lot of people, but for me, it doesn't work. Like for me, what I do is I go out in nature and I find something that, that I love mm. and I do it and I stop in the middle of it. And I'm like, wow, like I'm, I'm in, I'm on a high right now. Like I'm having so much fun. Like I'm, I'm in this amazing place and that's where I stop and I just look at where I'm at and I take a couple deep breaths and I just think for like five, 10 minutes and then I move on. Like that's mm -hmm. my meditation, whether it's surfing, snowboarding, like rock climbing, rock climbing, like whatever I love. And yeah. like, that's how I meditate. And I, and I have like a, I would say I have a pretty good memory. So I can clearly remember a lot of the things I went through. And, you know, that can be a pro and a con. It can be like, wow, like, oh my gosh, like I went through this and it can, you know, pull me down. But I don't see it that way. I see it as, wow, I can clearly remember how I got through this and like what I did. So what I'm about to do is nothing compared to what I just went through. Yeah. Or what I went through in the past. Like I'm a beast, you know? So that's how I see it. Like I see it in a positive way. And I always try to do things like that. I always try to, uh, you know, push myself and like dive, you know, into the deep end. Like, I don't care if I fail. And before I go in, I tell myself, like, I think back, I'm like, I was in war. I led 12 people into war. I almost died. Like I'm a beast. Like I can do anything. Right. You know, and it really, it, mo it pushes me. It pushes me. Um, like it's kind of like a self motivator that I big time just like inject in myself before I do whatever I want to do. Dude, that's so cool. I love that. And, and it's so important for, for anybody, no matter what it is you've been through to go look at David Goggins. I think he calls it his cookie jar mm -hmm. of like the list of shit that he's gone through that he can go look back and be like, I went through this. Like I did this. I'm a badass. I can do whatever else, like whatever else, whatever ever challenge throws my way. Like I can do this. It's so important. But what I find fascinating about what you're saying is like you, you like adopt, adopted this positive outlook or this positive mentality 
um, of, of choosing to see things for the good and choosing to see the value and, and how this might be helping you, working for you instead of happening to you. You were forced to do that out of a place of like necessity where it was either that or the other option of complete self implosion. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think you, you said in your first, in your first episode of the podcast, I think I remember you saying you can, it's all about perspective, right? You can either see, you know, a rose bush that has thorns on it or a thorn bush that has beautiful roses. And so that's like, that hits, you know, the nail on the head. Like I, I see things just like that. Wow. So I, you know, I, I see it like this, like you can go into an alleyway and two people can go into an alleyway, me and you, and you know, we can see a car and someone in the car, right? And you can see it as, oh my gosh, this is sketchy. Like, what is this guy doing in his car? Like, I don't want to get hurt. Like, mm. let's get out of here. And I could be, I could see it like, wow, like maybe this guy needs help. He might be lost. Mm. So it's all about perspective. Totally. And, you know, that's kind of like my mentality and the way I see things. I just try to take everything as a, you know, as a positive, you know, whatever happens to me, even if it's bad, like, even if I get hurt, like, how can I take that and turn it into, you know, what, you know, how I can be stronger later on into the future. And I think that's like, you know, everybody should be able to do that. Everybody is able to do that. Yeah. And it's just practicing, you know, it's practicing it and being aware of, you know, when you're not doing it and switch, switching it. And that's just, you know, like practice. It's a practice, like exactly. anything. It's a practice. Yeah. That is inspiring, my friend. Wow. That really, really is. And um, I think there's so much, so much goodness to unpack there and, and truly inspiring to see how you can, how you came to that and were able to do that and take part and build that practice in war, right? In, in combat. Um, and that's, that's really inspiring to me. So thank you for sharing that, bro. Yeah, no problem. Absolutely. Dude, uh, this is a pleasure. I know we could keep talking for days and days. I'll definitely have to have you on again in the future. But um, man, thank you so much for being on here. Is there any um, any last parting words of wisdom that you have for any of the listeners out there? Yeah, I just want to say for all the people listening, take everything easy. Take everything with you know a, a good heart, a good soul. Just be good to one another. Be good to the people around you. Um, you know, only good things happen if you're good to others. So just take everything with a positive mind and just spread the love. And that's it. Find the others. Hey, there we <laughs> go. <laughs> we'll end it right there. That's dope. All right, Sagi, much love, bro. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me.